Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with the industry's biggest names. I am your host, Alan Seals. This episode is with one of my favorite people, Lily Cooper. She's got a brand spanking new show at 54 Below that's happening on two nights, July 28th and August 15th. Definitely go to 54below.com, get your tickets for those because this is a show that she's never done before. Completely original and she's going to be like eight months pregnant (laughs) while she's doing this. It's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to see. A lot of people may know her from Spring Awakening, which actually was her first professional audition ever. It got her the job and her life has been changed forever. Something that we talked about that actually kind of really surprised me was that it's very ironic. She went to a a performing arts high school. I'm not going to name names here in the intro, but we did get into it in the interview. And ironically, being that it is a performing arts school, she did not feel supported by this school when she got Spring Awakening. So she had to go back and forth between school and a Broadway show and her school about performing arts and trying to get into this industry did not support her being in this industry. At least that's how she felt at the time. So her story behind that is is really just quite amazing. And working through that to get where she is now is just a really fun story. So I hope you enjoy it. Find me online on Instagram and Twitter, theater underscore podcast. Share your support for the podcast at ttp.fm slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. All of the proceeds go to ongoing transcriptions and production costs and editing costs and running a podcast ain't cheap. For those of you who have one, this is hard work. So please show your support. Every little bit is appreciated. Thank you to everybody who has already given a little bit because it goes a long way. Leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening now. And everybody, please enjoy this episode with Lily Cooper. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode's guest needs no introduction, but I'm going to give her one anyway. She made her Broadway debut at age 16 in the original Broadway cast of Spring Awakening, was the standby for Elphaba in Wicked, originated our favorite squirrel in the Broadway production of SpongeBob SquarePants, and recently got a Tony nomination for her role in Tootsie. She has TV and film credits, including Bull Elementary, Instinct, Indoor Boys, and Dynasty, and soon will be debuting a brand new solo show at 54 Below at the end of July, Lily Cooper, welcome to the theater podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you doing? How are you feeling? You are you are pregnant. You are very I'm pregnant now. Very pregnant. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling really good. It's it's kind of um, it's a strange time to be pregnant because it's very isolating, but it also is kind of a perfect time because you know I really have a break from working and I don't have to worry about you know taking off of work so it's kind of a, a blessing um but I'm feeling really good I'm 
I'm my first trimester really sucked. I was really sick and exhausted all the time. So now I'm like, oh, I have energy. I go for walks and I try to work out and, you know, it's feeling way better. So I'm really like appreciative of how much better I'm feeling now. So you were saying a second ago before we started that that you're going to be like eight months pregnant when you're doing your 54 Below show. Oh, yeah. So I have (laughs) one in the end of July and then I also have one in August. So I'm going to be like around eight months in July and then August. I mean, who knows? I might even go into labor at 54 Below. That'll be a fun (laughs) show. That would be very cool. I hope that you're recording both of them. So you at least, you know, you have that moment to show exactly. your child of like, this is what kicked you into, this is what brought yeah. you into the world is when this I is hit this. This what brought ele- you into the world, yeah. child. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, that's so cool. Is your show, do you have a, a, an idea of what the show is going to be yet? Or I mean, how far in advance do you start planning this kind of thing? You know, what's really fun about having the time is that I can really kind of develop it, uh, as we go. I'm working with my awesome music director, Julie McBride, who was the conductor for SpongeBob on Broadway. And we're really going to like collaborate and kind of throw ideas back and forth. And I have some kind of loose ideas, but I'm excited to really kind of flesh it out. I think the broad strokes is music that I love and that I love to sing. And, you know, when you're given this opportunity to to stand on a stage and sing for people for an hour, which I haven't been able to do in a year and a half. I I just was so excited about it. And so I just want it to be kind of like a joyous, entertaining, fun night. Um, So I think that means a broad spectrum of music. I have a pretty eclectic taste in music, I think. So it's going to run the gamut. I thought, I I guess it was... Well, I guess maybe had assumed it was going to be like pregnancy focused and that you had planned the whole thing to be like, I got to do this while I'm definitely showing and while everything is out there. Right. So obviously you got to throw some sort of like baby number in there. baby. Oh, hell yeah, of course. I mean, I definitely think it's it's a it's a fun perk that I'm going to be pregnant. I'll definitely make reference to it. (laughs) I won't be hiding the fact that I have a gigantic belly Um, and Maybe I'll sing a song or two to my baby boy. Did you know, speaking of gigantic, that the internet says you weigh 105 pounds and are 7 foot 11 inches tall? That is not real. Really? (laughs) What what internet says that? (laughs) I was looking, you know, of course, I Google people for these interviews just to see what I can find. Famousbiography.io says you are 7'11 and 105 pounds. Wow, that would be terrifying. If someone was 7'11 and weighed 105 pounds, even if I was my height and and was 105 pounds, I think I was like 10 years old when I was 105 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I can't remember. my, My son, he's like almost... Six. Wait, how old is he? Yeah, <laughs> six and a half. And uh, he's close to that. But yeah, uh, I was, don't believe everything you read on the internet, folks. That's yeah. the lesson here. Seriously. But I want to go back to what you said. So the show, the songs that you like, the shows that you like, you like a lot. Um, I'm in a very poor way trying to tie this into your childhood, right? Because of course, 16, you make your Broadway debut in Spring Awakening. But before that, you come from, uh, you have a family lineage of of performing and whatnot. And I guess your father being Chuck Cooper, he has his own Tony, a Tony win. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that where you got your 
your love for performing and love for Broadway from? Or did you, did they try to keep you, you and your parents, did they try to keep you out of it? Because I don't know if someone who was in it would be like, this is really hard, <laughs> child, do not do this. Exactly, exactly. Um, no, they were, they were incredibly supportive of uh, what I wanted to do my entire life. I definitely think it is part of why I got into it. I, I think that it's kind of in my blood. My mom was an actress and both of my older brothers are actors. We all went to LaGuardia High School, which is the fame high school in New York. Mm -hmm. So um, we were really just immersed in it, in theater and in the arts our entire life. I mean, we grew up in Midtown in Hell's Kitchen in New York. So we were blocks away from Broadway. We literally could see Times Square from our you know, terrace. Um, and that was our life. That was our upbringing. So it was something that was just ingrained in me from such a young age. And, and I loved it. And I think that, you know, without kind of like telling my life story, I think my <laughs> 54 Below show will definitely pay homage to my upbringing and my, and my love for music and um, maybe a show or two that I was raised on. And, and uh, I actually just did a concert with my dad with Seth Radetzky, we did one of his um, concert series mm -hmm. and he sprung a hilarious idea on us last minute, which was for us to sing the oldest profession from the life, which is the show that my dad wanted Tony for. And it's a very dark show. It's about uh, drug dealers and sex workers in the eighties in New York. So family and the, friendly. Right. Family friendly. I was yeah. seven when that show was out. And I, one of my fondest memories of the theater is being backstage at the life, like making friends with all the ensemble girls who were, you know, prostitutes. And <laughs> little seven-year-old Lily is just like walking around backstage at the Barrymore Theater. Um, and so my dad and I sang this song about the oldest profession together. And it was so much fun that I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to put that in my, in my 54 Below show. Are you going to bring in your dad for a, a cameo on that? I don't know. Maybe. Uh -huh, we'll maybe. See. That's so cool. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was reading, too, there was an interview that you gave in 2007. So I think you were 17 at the time or, or yeah. thereabouts. Um, you mentioned you went to LaGuardia. But it was funny because in the interview, you said that your your teachers from a performing arts high school didn't seem to be supportive of you moonlighting as a Broadway actor. Nope. <laughs> it was, it was kind of surprising how challenging it was to work outside of school, even though I went to a performing arts school. They had a very conservatory mentality where they were like, you know, you must get your theater education before you go out into the field. And I kind of thought that was or bullshit. So I made it work and I wanted to make it work because you get an opportunity to be in a Broadway show when you're 16. I'm not going to be like, nah, I'm good. I'd rather go to trigonometry. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so, you know, we, my mom was amazing. She was so supportive. We figured out a way to get all of my homework to me when I was in rehearsals and not doing, uh, not going to classes. I think the theater department was more helpful than the academics were for sure. They just, the academic department just didn't understand absences. They were like, well, if you're absent, then you're not here and you're not doing any of your work. And even if you hand it in on time, you're not here. And so there was just no, there was just no understanding of, of how it could, we could make it work. And that was frustrating. And then I had this terrible drama teacher who I truly believe was like vehemently jealous of the fact that I was 
you know, working and made my life a living hell. And I actually considered homeschooling for a while because of how awful he was to me. Wow. And that was really crappy. Um, so yeah, that was lame. That was my junior year. And then my senior year was better. I had better I mean, most of the teachers at LaGuardia I loved and adored, but there was just one who was really a monster. Um, so yeah, that was tough that, you know, I didn't really have that support system at school, but luckily I had the support system at home with my family. You can't be the first person at LaGuardia, a performing arts high school, to have a, have a job on Broadway. You'd think, right? I mean, I was the, I was the only one at the time. I don't, think I was the first in history, but it was not a precedent that had been set. There are other performing arts schools in the city, like um, PPIS and uh, Professional Children's School, that are specifically for working kids and are designed around kids getting work and going to school at the same time. And LaGuardia, I think, was pretty adamant about not being that. So... I don't know. They just tried to like make it hard. But what I'm really proud of is the fact that after me, there were quite a few kids who were on Broadway and who were working professionally. Um, and so I thought I, I, it felt kind of like I opened the door for it. Um, and so I'm really proud of that. And that was an exciting kind of shift that the school had after that year. Were you, were you working? Um, I guess it, at the, of course, the the Broadway, uh, Broadway at that level, uh, Spring Awakening, eight shows a week, highly, highly demanding, and and the cast ranged. I think it was sixteen to twenty four, so mm-hmm. it was all relatively young people, right? Yeah, a lot of people made their or their debuts there, but um, in terms in terms of before that, how often were you auditioning, and how often were you were you working to build up to this? I guess so. What I'm trying to get at is is like. What was all of a sudden out of the blue? You're you got to go to your teachers and you say like, oh, I've got a job now and on Broadway. Or before, were you doing? I mean, I'm sure that the, the high school itself does productions, but outside of the high school, what, uh, were you working? Yeah. So Spring Awakening was my first ever professional audition. I had never gone no on a professional kidding. audition before Spring Awakening. Yeah, it's kind of nuts. So yeah, I had done shows at school. Um, the story goes, I was doing a production of Hair at LaGuardia. It was my sophomore year. And the ironic thing about the school, you know, being that they weren't very supportive of people working outside of it, they still invited agents and managers to come see shows at my school. So I had this wonderful agent give me her card after seeing Hair. And I wasn't really interested in in delving into the world of the professional theater quite yet. But, you know, this opportunity was thrown at me. And so I called her and she's, and she straight up goes, Oh, I'm so glad you called. I have this perfect project for you. Um, we don't really know much about it, but it's this show about young people. And I think that you'd be perfect and you should just go in and audition. So I go in, um, to Carnahan's office and my mom comes with me because I'm 15 at the time. I'm, you know, a minor and I need her (laughs) to be my guardian. And I go in and I audition for this little show called Spring Awakening that no one knew anything about. And it was a workshop 
for prior to the off-Broadway production. Um, and the cool, the coolest thing that happened to me in that room was, you know, I, I think I sang Mama Who Bore Me or something and I did a set of sides. And then they were like, hey, will you stick around for a minute? We want to teach you a song. We want to teach you the dark I know well. And so Duncan Sheik and, and Kim Grigsby took me into another room and taught me this song on the spot. And I didn't even know that that was a thing that anybody did that. You know, I thought it was just <laughs> prepare your music and you go in and you audition. So I learned this song and I sang it. And then a few, I think it was actually a few weeks later, I got the phone call that I got this workshop. And I remember the timing was crazy because I was just about to come up on spring break and I was just about to be out of school for a week. So I literally did have to go to my teachers and be like, hey, so I got this job. Uh, it's going to be about three weeks after spring break. So I'm not going to be here for a month. Um, bye. And that was it. And we just figured it out. You know, we had tutors on set and everything. So, or, you know, at rehearsals. So yeah, it was really this crazy whirlwind fast process that I didn't really have much time to think about. It just kind of happened and all fell in my lap and I felt very lucky. And we just had to kind of roll with the punches and figure out how to make it work. And luckily we did. Was, was was there any, I guess, parallels in your in your real life to what was going on in the show in so much as that it's a show about coming of age and it's a show of, of, of young people discovering themselves and learning about sexuality and sensuality and all of this. And it seems like it, it was a bold choice that worked in the end, of course, to, to cast children of uh, children, literal children yeah. to play these parts of children. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you, do you look back at this and sort of be, and be like, oh, that shaped this and I did this because of what I learned there. And I mean, even it's so advanced for its age when you even have, uh, you know, nudity on stage in a show mm. about kids. Right. There's just so much to unpack in all of this. Yeah, it was really deep. I, I think it was, it was one of those experiences that I didn't realize how, profound it was until I was outside of it because it was all so glitzy and exciting and you know I was making money for the first time and we were these young people that were just like we're so cool look at us we're on Broadway and it wasn't until we stepped away from it where we were like whoa this made a huge impact on Broadway on everyone who's seen it I mean, I still talk to people to this day who talk about how it's their favorite show and they listen to it all the time and you know, I've seen high school productions that are based on our original production, you know, ideas that we came up with in the rehearsal room that wouldn't have existed if we weren't cast in that show. So it, it really was a profound experience. And to answer your question, like there are, there were so many parallels. I mean, the show is about, I like to think that the show is a kind of about like angsty, horny, you know, troubled <laughs> teenagers. Right. And I was very much an, an angsty, horny, troubled teenager at the time. So it was, <laughs> it was very surreal, you know, telling this story that was um, quite similar to some experiences that I've had, experiences that my friends have had, um, pretty dark storylines that I'm lucky enough not to have experienced hands-on, uh, you know, like suicide and incest and yeah. um, all of those things were really dark subject matters to delve into, especially as a 15 and 16 year old. Um, and I realized afterward that it was very 
cathartic, very therapeutic for us as these young people experiencing these things. And it was also very cathartic and therapeutic for the audience members. You know, we would see, talk to people at the stage door after who were just weeping and would tell us their stories and would talk about how much it helped them to open up about their stories. And it was a really miraculous thing to be a part of at such a young age. Um, And something that I'm just so eternally proud of because it really made an impact. And I was, I don't think any of us were expecting that, you know, it was the little show that could, we kind of thought, eh, we will run as long as we run and we'll have a little money to go to the movies. And, you know, that's all we really thought was going to happen, but it kind of blew up and and became this thing so much bigger than any of us could have imagined. Oh, I, I totally can relate to that. I mean, that that's this again. Listening to the to the cast album, I still listen to. Uh, my junk is one of my favorite songs. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, and I still listen to that. If I'm like, oh, I'm tired of this stuff. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this new stuff. I that's one of the the old ones that I go back to, and and the old cast albums that like mm-hmm. reminds me of. You know, I was in my my I guess my yeah my mid twenties I guess, mm-hmm. and and so it I was uh, an angsty horny twenty year old yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> who hadn't quite dealt with my angsty horny teenage years yet uh-huh. and and yeah it's it's all it's all there there is something and so many levels and I think I mean it speaks to the the depth of the music that that Duncan wrote and then Stephen Sater with the book it, I mean this. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And I, I think he is an incredible writer. Mm, but mm-hmm. and then sort of continuing the the angsty journey, I guess. We we want to call Wicked an angsty, an angsty witch. Yeah, I, I actually think yeah. it is pretty angsty. Yeah. Right? There are these like two young girls in school figuring out all their problems. It's pretty angsty. <laughs> right, right. And well, you originally were in the Australian tour, right? The original production I was in was the was the um, North American tour, the Munchkinland tour, actually. Oh, so cool! So I started out as the understudy. Um, I was in the ensemble, and I did that for a year. And I was hired as the understudy for Alphaba. But the weird thing about being an understudy, at least for um, Wicked, when there's a standby, is that I was the second cover. So mm-hmm. I. I only went on as Alphabet twice in an entire year. Wow. So it was really, you know, every time I did go on, it was terrifying. I was about so, to say. Yeah. I mean, imagine, yeah. right? Like you're in rehearsal all day, every week, but you only get to do it for your audience of 3,000 people once every six months. It gets crazy. So, you know, I remember the very first time that I did it was my put-in rehearsal which is our rehearsal with all the elements and costumes and everything. And I go up on the, we call it the cherry picker, the defying gravity lift. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all of the ensemble is in the wings and they're all filming me and cheering. And I'm just like weeping, singing, def- trying to sing defying gravity. Because <laughs> it was just so crazy to think that like this was actually happening to me. Um, so yeah, after that, after playing the role twice in a year, I got asked to go to Australia where I was the alternate where I played it twice a week. Wow. Yeah, so that was a big shift. <laughs> uh, it was terrible, so scary, but really awesome to delve in and be able to actually do it, you know, a few Wait, times does the, does the Broadway cast currently, well, not currently because it's shut down, but when, when it comes back, and I guess before COVID, did it have an alternate? Was there an... No, you know, I think 
only the non-American productions have alternates. The North American tours and the Broadway production have a standby. Yeah. Um, and the alphabet, you know, is contractually supposed to do eight shows a week, which is crazy. I don't know that's how a, anybody yeah, that's does that. that's a this. lot. It's a lot. It's really, really insane. So I was really lucky that I got to be a part of the Australian production because I had two shows a week built into my contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's different. It's, yeah, it's different. It's fun. I, oh gosh, I... I think alternate. I mean, for for your own physical health too. I think to um, I keep relating things to to the Moulin Rouge cast now because mm-hmm. I think the leads have the easier track. The ensemble yeah. is dancing their butts off oh, for two and a half hours for and two in and those and a half hours. corsets and heels and the sets that they're climbing up and down. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So I'm th- you know I'm thinking about. You know, of course, dear Evan Hansen has an alternate, and I forget there is one more that I know of that has an alternate. But I think I Hamilton has an alternate. Do they now? It did at one point. Maybe because that's wrong. a lot. I don't. I don't remember. But but yeah, like it makes sense to me. Oh, it's Tina. 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 Yes, of course. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, totally. God, Adrian Warren. Her legs are literally <laughs> going to fall off. Um, <laughs> side note, I'm gonna go off tangent. I, when I saw Tina, uh, I was waiting, I was waiting, uh, at the stage door for one of the cast cause we were going to go out afterwards mm-hmm. and, and Adrian Warren comes out and everyone's, you know, been waiting on her the whole time. And she comes out like just walking, like sort of her legs had just been in a, in a cast because oh she doesn't do stage door afterwards because she comes immediately off stage. I don't know if you, do you know this? She comes off stage, puts her legs in like these compression, compression things. sleeves. Yeah, yeah. I've seen those. It's crazy. Cause that's how hard she's working. Like yeah. the blood that's flowing through her veins. She needs to actually have a recovery after each show. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. Right, right. So going to Moulin Rouge and her for Tina, because she came from West End to do it here on Broadway. Like, Mm -hmm. she got no break. And then I think that's part of the silver lining of Broadway being shut down for a little bit. If, you know, I, I... don't wish it on anybody and people need to pay their bills. But I, I you know, like uh, um, people from the, the Moulin Rouge cast and Robin Herter specifically, I, mm. you know, she was telling me that, that just the ability to stop and recover mm. and get that vocal rest yeah. that you just don't ever have the opportunity to get. It, Samantha Polly from Six, she was about to open with a dislocated rib. What? Yes. She, she had was, a, Oh, because it was opening had, night when it closed down, right? Yeah, yeah. It's five o'clock on their opening night when Broadway oh, shut down. She had scary. I saw their final preview the night before and I could tell something was off mm-hmm. when I was I was watching her and I was like, her face isn't quite in it. And she was in so much pain because one of her rib like her, she had a floating rib or something. It was oh a dislocated rib. And that's the kind of shit you yep. do for your craft. Yep. Show must go on. That Show is the kind of shit that people People push through. And that's the hardworking mentality that Broadway actors have. It's really incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I, I mean, don't, but to be honest, I don't envy people going straight back into shows right now just because <laughs> I would not be in the shape to do eight shows a week. I, I would need to go like into a boot camp to, ha- to get the energy back because getting off the couch is hard enough. 
let alone <laughs> doing eight shows a week. My God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's why a lot of these shows are going back into rehearsals, you know, in yeah. July to open right. in September. And it's <laughs> even kind of a longer ramp up period than you might normally have because people just haven't been performing at all. Right. So, but you, so you originated, you originated in, in Spring Awakening and then mm-hmm. took over existing roles in Wicked. And then, of course, we go next to SpongeBob if we get to originate a squirrel. Yeah, how cool and is that? How that many people get like, to say that? So that looked cool. like so much fun. I saw that show multiple times. Yeah. And loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I mean, so I actually want to know, do you remember the first time you were approached about it? You're like, yeah, we're making a SpongeBob musical and we're, we want you to be uh, Sandy Cheeks. Were you like, what the hell? <laughs> I do vividly remember the first time I remember hearing about it. Uh, I knew about it for a while because Ethan Slater and I went to college together Mm. and he had actually been doing workshops since we were in college together. And so he's been a part of it forever. So I knew that it existed and I knew how amazing Ethan was and how awesome he'd be at that part. So I had sort of, you know, heard about it, heard whispers. I didn't know that it was like eventually going to make it to Broadway or how far it would go or what it would turn into eventually. But um, it was something that sounded just really cool and new and different than anything else. So when I finally got the audition for Sandy, I was so stoked because mostly because of the opportunity to get to play with my friend again Mm -hmm. and to really like play opposite him. And when I got my audition appointment, I called him and he's like, oh, what day are you going in? Oh my God, I'm going to be there. And he was at my audition. So it felt so safe and so comfortable and fun to go into this audition and have your friend there reading with you to be able to play off of him. And so it was already an environment that I was like, this is dope. I feel like I'm going to fit right <laughs> in. And I feel like I'm like very excited about this process. And I want to... I want to do, not like, of course, every audition you want to do your best, but this audition was like, I need this job. I need to book this. This is, this is for me. This is straight up for me. Because I could tell that the goal was to find a group of weirdos <laughs> that all fit together in this crazy puzzle to create something magical. And I was just like, oh, I want to be one of those weirdos so badly. And so we did, Tina threw fun stuff at us in the, in the audition. Like she told me to do a, a, to just improv a karate dance. I was like, okay, what's a karate dance? And what I realized was she just wanted the actors auditioning to be willing to make fools of themselves and not hold back. Right. And so how cool is it to step into an audition and be like, all right, I'm not afraid to fail here. I just want to be wacky and make up crazy stuff. And hopefully it makes them laugh and see what happens. And so it was the most fun, by far the most fun audition process I had ever had. And that's part of what made me think like, oh, I need this job. This is like so for me. If the audition is that much fun, you can only imagine how fun the rehearsal process is. Finally, I got the call and I was just so, so excited. I knew it was going to be a pretty magical process. It, 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 
was. It was a great show. And it was, I think it was executed so unbelievably well. And I mean, again, going back to a group of weirdos, you are 100% right. Now that you put that in context, mm-hmm. you know, because because like uh, a Stephanie Shue, mm-hmm. you're a computer. How are you gonna? How are you gonna go over the top and be a computer? She figured it out. She figured it out. Wes Taylor is a plankton. Yeah. Like, how do you act to be a plankton? And he I know. figured he did that. He I know the, the two of them together were magical, uh, absolutely magical. I mean, the whole cast was just absolutely so much fun. And you got, you know, your uh, the g- crab hand, crabs, right? Yeah, Mr. Crabs. Mr. Crabs, yeah, yeah, those big uh, uh, boxing, yeah, the hands. boxing gloves, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the boxing mitts. The design just, of it, I think, was what really was another element that made it so beautiful and um, imaginative and new. David Zinn is such a brilliant designer. He did the set and the costumes, which I think mm. was such a smart idea to have one person do all of that because it was creating this world that um, was so kind of seamless. You walk into the theater, the theater and you're like, oh, I'm in Bikini Bottom, 100%. I believe it. And that's because of David Zinn. Yeah, I loved how all of the set was made pretty much out of everyday items. like. You know, there were pool noodles in there and beach balls and other things that you might actually find at the bottom of an ocean. Yeah. And they made this a beautiful, beautiful set. I loved it. So then Tootsie, maybe controversial. A little. Well, did have some controversy around it. it did. I, the, timing, the timing of it, I wonder if it would happen now. Because post-pandemic, yeah. post-George Floyd, post anti-Asian hate, like everything that's going on right Mm -hmm. now, I don't know if the show would happen now. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I don't know that it would. Or if it did, I think it would would happen in in somewhat of a different rendition. I think that we tried to make it as present day as possible and, and bring in the kind of political climate, um, of the world that was happening at the time. And uh, I think we succeeded in making it a feminist show. I do. Uh, you know, it, it was problematic. I mean, like the fact that, you know, we wanted it to be this feminist story. It was being told by a white man. Mm-hmm. And that in itself is, is a problem. So, you know, our entire creative team were also white men. So, uh, yeah, I think it was kind of like eye-opening to be a part of, uh, to hear people's opinions who disagreed with it. It was very, um, I learned a lot. And I was really grateful to the people who were willing to have open, honest conversations about how they felt about the show. Um, And, you know, I think it's something that we learned from. And hopefully the trajectory of theater will take that into account and um, shift. That's what I'm hoping for when we come back. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love now that, I mean, it's yet to be seen how much this is going to stick, but there is a huge push and a huge demand, I think, for diversity, uh, not just on stage, but in the creative teams too. And you brought up that, you know, the creative team of Tootsie was all white men, that, even having one woman on the creative team probably could have shifted the whole story a little bit in a way that may have made it more palatable for the people who disagreed with it. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So the fact that too, we're you know, uh, gosh, I mean, I think Jeremy O'Harris slave play came out in December, January of 2020, December 2019, January 2020, and then the pandemic hit, shut everything down. Then there was this racial social awakening, which pulled the pulled the bandaid off of what was already there. I think right. that's that's what is a common misconception of like, oh, since George Floyd, all of a sudden this stuff's been happening. Like, no, it's always no. been there. Yeah. Right, that it's always been there and present and prevalent, but it's been um, kind of swept under the rug for centuries. Right, and so now you've got, you know, the Scott Rudens who who have to step back and you've you've got shows that are being written like Slave Play that literally you put a mirror on the audience and make you evaluate Mm. yourself. Mm -hmm. My God, I love that show. I love that show so much. So much. And we we need more of that. And we need more of that on Broadway, we need more of that. Uh, unfortunately, right? Oh, I guess I, I don't know right now because there is no Broadway right now. When we come back, we're, we have our staples that are coming back. Everything big, everything big budget, all this right. stuff's coming back. But I think the 2022 23 season, I really, really hope, and maybe in maybe 23 24, because it takes a couple years for these things to make it to Broadway sometimes. Mm-hmm. But the things that, that come are they have as much energy and as much budget and as much effort put into something when it makes you feel uncomfortable. Mm, mm-hmm. Because Absolutely. the uncomfortable things don't tend to last as long. No, unfortunately. Unfortunately not, right? So that's why a lot of them are plays. A lot of them have limited runs and you get into the, this kind of stuff. And I just, I really hope, I'm putting out the call now, I'm putting it out in the universe that I, I think it's, it's all going to start with diversity in the creative teams, diversity in production, which mm-hmm. that's going to take a lot longer, I think, to catch up with because Absolutely. you need to, you need to, tr- I guess, get the word out and show representation in the industry so that people can, if they can see it, they can be it, right? So yeah. you need a couple people to be the game changers, then the, everybody else to say, oh, I could do that too, because then they see it and then they have to get the income and the production credits and, you know, all the, all the stuff that happens. But the more the more we can start now, and I, I like to talk about this on the podcast here too, because if any young people are listening now, that yeah, I want to plant the seed that especially if you are not a white man, you can produce, you can create, yeah. you can be involved without stepping on stage. Right, and just because you don't, you haven't seen it yet, doesn't mean it can't exist. And I think you're so right that it has to do because it has to do with the ground up. We're talking about casting directors. We're talking mm-hmm. about producers. We're talking about the money people who let the show happen, theater owners. This is going to take a long time to shift because this is how ingrained the system is and how Broadway has been built. Um, so it's not an overnight change. Um, as much as I we wish that it could happen quicker, we have to invest the time and commitment to this change, I think, and be accept the fact that it will take a while. And I'm excited about what Broadway will look like in the next 10 years. I don't know that it will be the inclusive, you know, miraculous thing that we want it to be in September. But in the next few years, I see these changes happening. Mm-hmm. And I really hope for them. And I, I think that we have 
the potential because we're talking about it, because we're opening doors for people on the ground level. I'm talking about like, I want internships for, Mm -hmm. for people of color, for different socioeconomic backgrounds, for people outside of New York, you know, all of these things so that from the ground up, we can really start changing how Broadway is created. Part of this too, and this just occurred to me, can come, could be like a government subsidy sort of project because right now ticket prices make Broadway inaccessible to Mm -hmm. a lot of people. Absolutely. Like one of the things that was so frustrating to me about seeing Hamilton was that I didn't see a brown, when I first saw it, you know, I forget when that was. I didn't, I, I like maybe, I didn't see a brown face in the audience. And that, I mean, that has changed over time. I think that they've done a lot of outreach, which has been wonderful. But the fact is these premium tickets that cost thousands of dollars are being bought by one group of people. And we mm-hmm. all know who that is. And that's really unfortunate. I wish that there were, it was a wider variety of audience members being able to see things. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. And and even even the edge of ham, um, the the ham for ham, all the stuff that they're doing to to bus in students and all that. It's still it's very it's a very small amount of students, which then goes back to what you were saying about the the cost of putting up a production, a Broadway production, is so astronomical. Yeah, that you can't give away half your house to. Uh, to underprivileged students or underprivileged people or or people of a certain socioeconomic background simply because you have to be able to put on your show tomorrow as well as today. And you have to be able to pay your actors and your crew. Like, (laughs) it totally makes sense. Then, you know, maybe the question is like, can we not be spending $30 million on musicals anymore? Like, it's ridiculous. Do we really need that? Like, do I really need a custom $10,000 dress? Like, yeah, no, yeah. probably not. Maybe we can budget a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was trying to think back to the OBC of Spring Awakening. Again. Were you the only person of color in the original Broadway cast? I was. I was, yeah. Robbie Hager um, was a swing. He was in it for a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, on stage, I was the only person of color. I have been... In the four Broadway shows I've been in, I have been the only person of color either in the entire show or in the principal cast of every show I've been in. So in different renditions, I mean, I I was in Wicked for a while and that kind of shifted, but there were moments where I was the only one. And that is so deeply troubling. Right. So at the time when you're 15 doing the workshop, 16 doing the show, I mean, did, did you, I guess... Props again to the casting team and because I easily could have said, oh, this is set in Germany. Obviously, they're like, this has to be all white people because it's the time of in time of the world. And but it's we're in- also pulling microphones out of our jackets and singing songs. So right. it's an imaginary world, you guys. Right, right. <laughs> so at that point, I mean, I, I don't... I don't want to say, well, I guess it was unusual then to sort of, to sort of bring that in, but did, was that ever spoken about at that time? Do you remember anything about just kind of looking around and being like, oh, this is normal for me to be the only one or was it addressed at all? Um, I think the tricky thing about being the only one is that it's very easy to slip into the, the idea of becoming the token um, who checks a box for 
you know, representation in the show. And that can be a really tricky thing, I think, for actors' self-esteem and for our belief in ourselves that we deserve to be there because of our merit and not just because we check a box. Um, That can be really challenging. I think when, when people talk now a lot about like, uh, oh, well, everything is so diverse now and like white people can't get jobs. Like I, like there's so many people that talk to me about that that are like, well, I can't, I can't really book a job now because you know, you gotta be of a certain blah, blah, blah to get a job. And it's like, Really? Is that is that how we're going to qualify this, that that people aren't getting jobs because of their merit, but just because, you know, boxes need to be checked? Like, it's awful. And I remember feeling like that when I was 16. And I remember being referred to in the show as the splash of color that it needed. Mm. And that sticks with you. That really affects you especially at such a young age. Right. And it's tricky because it was a wonderful thing that I was cast and that young brown boys and girls in the audience saw somebody who looked like them. Um, but at the same time, it was it was really troubling to know that maybe there was any form of, you know, wanting to fill a quota. And... Uh, we kind of need to navigate that and figure out how to be inclusive without um, falling into tokenism. Yeah. So taking it then current, the Tony nom for Tootsie, that's you know, the, to get nominated for a Tony, you're the best of the best. Is Was this the other end of it or did you still have a little bit of... Like, well, did I just get nominated because I was the only one? I mean, so was was that was that still with you? Um, I think it, I think it's I think it it's kind of a, like a daily struggle that I navigate. Um, I wasn't expecting to get nominated, but I worked my ass off, and I thought I was really fucking good in that show, <laughs> and that I deserved it. So I was just very proud. And I tried not to lessen that in any way. I tried to live in that pride and excitement for myself because I felt like I deserved that. You know, mm-hmm. I've really been climbing the ranks since I was 15 years old and I've been working really hard. And, and um, to get the recognition like that felt really wonderful. Um, I mean, four of us in that show were nominated and that's yeah. not common. Like, and two of us in the same category, that's really not common. So And it was a really, really competitive year also. So I felt like, wow, if this is really happening, like I really deserved this. And this is something that, you know, I, I've been working for. I mean, I, you know, you never want awards to be like your goal in life, but it certainly feels good when it (laughs) happens. (laughs) So yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was a pretty rewarding um, thing to happen. And it, it, it include it puts you into this new group of people as much smaller echelon of people mm-hmm. and they can't take it away from you. You know, you're a Tony nominee forever. And it's, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> that is cool. I'm, I'm happy to hear that, that you were able to, that you took it for what I, I would hope that you took it for, which was yeah. an actual recognition of true talent. Because I mean, I, I've seen you actually, I, other than, other than Wicked, 
I've seen you in the other three shows, and uh, I actually saw you in the OBC cast. Of, wow! Uh, yeah, it's. It, I came up. I came up at that point in my life. I wasn't in New York yet, but I came up. I remember seeing it, and uh, just remember. I remember you. I actually really do remember you from the OBC. You know, and I was like, they. You know, she is really good. That really, really talented. So, um, congratulations. If I haven't said it again yet. So (laughs) we'll wrap up here with the three closing questions I ask everybody. The first one is very simply, just what motivates you? What motivates me? Um, Young artists have really been motivating me recently. This past year has been really challenging to find any inspiration, um, any artistic fulfillment. And one of the things that has... Uh, really helped me survive has been teaching and mm. working with young artists, master classes, voice lessons and such, and seeing the fervor and talent and excitement and love of the theater and young artists is something that just fuels me. And it makes me so excited about the future of what theater will become. Um, so yeah, I think like one of the biggest motivating factors for me right now is young people that are just ready to burst into the world. Literally like the one you are carrying in your uh, stuff, white, in your belly. Literally. Right <laughs> <laughs> and then, what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? Advice to my younger self, I would tell myself that I am worthy, that I am gifted, that I have a gift that I can share with people and to remember that and that being in a room where you're surrounded by, you know, people that you're impressed by or intimidated by is of course a privilege, but you also belong there and you're there for a reason. And it's really good to remember that. Um, I would also remind young artists to be just brutally honest with themselves. And I think those are kind of two sides of one coin where if you have that talent and you have that drive, then you should be able to push yourself into the next level of whatever it is you're doing and challenge yourself. Surround yourself with people who are better than you so that you want to get better constantly. You know, take the dance class that's one level harder so that you're not the best in the class. And that's being really honest with yourself. That's saying, okay, I have things to improve on. And once you see those improvements, then you can pat yourself on the back and say, look at what I did. It's pretty awesome. Uh, Yeah. Never stop learning. Never stop learning, ever. All right, so the last question, hardest one. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? Ooh, wow, that is so hard. Oh, oh my goodness. Um, uh, how do I answer that question? That's so hard. You know what? <laughs> I'm going to choose one that I actually never saw because I... I've, and I've always loved it, which is the original production of Ragtime. Mm. So if I could just like live in that world and watch that all the time, I would love it because I've right. never seen it. 
All right. Where can we find you on social media? Social media. I'm on Instagram at Lil Coops with a Z. <laughs> Coops. <laughs> and Twitter at Lily Cooper. Uh, yeah, that's me. And of course, get tickets to the show at 54 Below, which uh, is going to be a very tired and pregnant Lily. Which hot is Hot and sweaty, hot probably. And sweaty. Oh, Short-tempered. I I cannot wait. <laughs> I cannot wait. You can get more of me at the theaterpodcast.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast. Please leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening now. This has been edited by Well-Rounded Hoodlum Productions. Thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. And Lily Coops, thank you mm. so much. This has been so much fun. Thank you, Alan. This has been awesome. Thanks for having me. colorful have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels well here's your chance welcome to the quiet part out loud with me bobby steggert broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of broadway creatives part interview part therapy this is not your typical podcast we'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists what they still struggle with what lessons they've learned what they haven't figured out yet there's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.